Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brotmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Harry S. Truman Little White House in Key West. Our visitors, especially our international visitors, are always surprised at how homey it is, how, how ordinary, if you like, it is, that it is not palatial, it is not uh, glitzy, it's certainly not Washington, and it's certainly not... Versailles or any of the the palaces that the rest of the world looks on and their leadership is having. The Bulow Plantation produced sugar in the early 1800s. They produced, of course, sugar cane, uh, but also indigo, which was a a primary commodity at that time uh, that was being shipped out of what is now uh, Ponce Inlet. And we'll discuss 101 prehistoric canoes discovered at Noonan's Lake. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. My fellow Americans... I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk to you once more before I leave the White House. Next Tuesday, General Eisenhower will be inaugurated as President of the United States. A short time after the new President takes his oath of office, I will be on the train going back home to Independence, Missouri. I will once again be a plain private citizen of this great republic. That is as it should be. Inauguration Day will be a great demonstration of our democratic process. I'm glad to be a part of it. Glad to wish General Eisenhower all possible success as he begins his term. Glad the whole world will have a chance to see how simply and how peacefully our American system transfers this vast power of the presidency from my hands to his. It is a good object lesson in democracy. I'm very proud of it. And I know you are, too. That's President Harry During S. Truman giving months, his farewell address I've to the people of America on January 15, 1953. Truman's presidency saw the end of World War II with the use of atomic weapons on Japan, the founding of the United Nations, the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, the start of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and the racial integration of the military and federal agencies. During his presidency, Truman spent nearly six months working from what is now called the Harry S. Truman Little White House in Key West. Bob Wools is executive director of the Harry S. Truman Little White House Museum, which was originally constructed in 1890. The house originally was built as the first Navy officer's quarters on our submarine base, and it was built as a duplex for the paymaster and for the commandant. It was converted into a single dwelling from a duplex in 1911, and it became officially the Little White House in 1946 when President Truman started using it extensively as a vacation venue and working White House. The first president to use the Little White House was William Howard Taft. Being a Navy base, we've had a number of presidents use it, seven in total, ranging from William Howard Taft back in 1912, who came by via Flagler's Railroad and then sailed from Key West to Panama to see the building of the canal. He was very instrumental in building the Panama Canal, making eight trips there as Secretary of War and then as President of the United States. But then we've also had Presidents Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, 
since then, we've had uh, President Carter here on two different occasions, and Bill and Hillary Clinton came and spent the weekend with us. So it's an ongoing venue that's used by presidents. Although the Truman Little White House operates as a museum with guided tours 365 days a year, Bob Wools says there are still private areas. There are private quarters which, quite frankly, are not too historic. They have antique furniture and flat-screen TVs, so we don't include that in the tour. And that's where... Uh, visiting dignitaries come and stay. Seven presidents have stayed at the Little White House, but it bears the name of Harry S. Truman because he was the one who most fully utilized the facility while in office, spending 175 days in Key West. It's somewhat unique. Uh, The only uh, location quite similar to this would be Camp David. Uh, In our case, Harry Truman in 1946 had a hacking cough He was running the country almost single-handedly. There was no vice president, and he had attempted several vacations unsuccessfully, and he had given up on a vacation venue at all. And Admiral Nimitz spoke up and offered the former commandant's house because he had moved to smaller quarters, so this 9,000-square-foot house was sitting empty. Truman came for one week, was highly impressed with all the top-secret research the Navy was doing, and promised whenever he got tired he would be back, and it took him all of 12 weeks to get back. So each November, December, and February and March, the president would take up residence, sometimes for a week, sometimes several weeks, sometimes a month at a time, and the staff grew proportional. They went from 16 in 1946 to almost 59 in uh, 1949, and they were spending a month at a time and literally running the country from from Key West, Florida. Uh, The president would receive mail pouches every day or every other day containing legislation, correspondence, letters, books that he'd requested, and he actually was enacting legislation from this site. And it uniquely all reads, the White House, U.S. Naval Station, Key West, Florida. So Harry Truman is our first president to realize where the president is, there the White House is. While working at the Little White House in Key West, President Truman signed documents that would advance civil rights, help lead to the creation of Israel, and result in the firing of General Douglas MacArthur. Bob Wools explains that Franklin Delano Roosevelt stayed at the Little White House both before and during his presidency. Franklin Roosevelt came multiple times prior to his presidency. Uh, Amongst them in the 20s, his doctor informed him that warm water and sunshine would be a cure for polio, and so he spent the winters of 1922, 23, 24, 25, and 26 here in the Florida Keys and actually spent six nights as a guest of our commandant in this house uh, seeking a cure for polio, and that's all prior to Warm Springs, Georgia. Uh, He did return as President of the United States in 1939, having driven down U.S. 1. He wanted to see the great new overseas highway that had just been built on Flagler's right away. So we've had, he would be technically our second president to use the site. Key West is closer to Cuba than to most of Florida. John F. Kennedy spent time at the Little White House during a crucial time in U.S. history when tensions with Cuba were at their height. Kennedy came first in uh, March of 1961 and had a one-day summit meeting with British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Officially, the meeting has to do with Laos, and it's certainly the beginning of the Vietnam War. It is highly possible, but we are haunted by this proximity to the fact that 23 days later was the U.S.-led invasion of Cuba known as the Bay of Pigs. So that would have been Kennedy's first active use of the House 
And then a, a year later, of course, Russian missiles were discovered in Cuba, and Key West was, became an armed camp overnight. Tourism died, and even though the crisis passed, tourists did not return. And so in November of 1962, John Kennedy came down, awarded some commendations and medals, and basically it was a goodwill mission to tell people it was safe to return to Key West, come on down and spend some tourist dollars. Since the Harry S. Truman Little White House opened as a museum in 1990, Jimmy Carter has had two family reunions there, and Bill and Hillary Clinton came for a weekend getaway. In the past, the house has hosted other important guests, including scientist and inventor Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison actually stayed in what we call our VIP quarters. He and his son Theodore lived here off and on, but mostly on, for almost six months' time, uh, late 1917 through 1918. And he was the head of the Navy Consulting Board at the time. They were perfecting 41 different weapons. Some, much of the research was done in Key West, but he did travel back and forth to Long Island and do some additional research up there. But Key West really gets to, to the bulk of the, the credit for that, uh, that experimentation time. And he was very disappointed in the Navy having perfected all these weapons. They said, we're at peace, we don't need them now. So he was not a happy camper. In addition to serving as a presidential retreat and a working alternate White House, the Harry S. Truman Little White House has been the site for important peace talks. The most recent, which was a very high-profile event, was in April of 2001. Colin Powell chose this as the site for international peace talks between the governments of Azerbaijan and Armenia. And for about a week, we had two foreign presidents, their entire cabinets, and about 100 delegates uh, working towards an eventual treaty. And both sides were very excited about the progress that was, was achieved here. And it was very sad for us when they went home. Both sides were told, you gave away too much. And so even to this day, the treaty still does not exist. So that, that's been a, a combat area of disputed territory for almost a 1,000 years. Despite its distinguished history, Bob Wools says that the Harry S. Truman Little White House fell into disrepair in the 1980s and was almost lost. It came under state ownership in 1987. A private developer had bought it after the Navy had, had uh, closed the base. We had switched in 1974 from diesel submarines to nuclear subs, and they were simply too large for Key West Harbor. When that occurred, it was assumed that we would open as a, if either a state or a county museum. And unfortunately, the politicians fought over free land and no one would be in agreement. And so the building sat uh, deteriorating very severely over the next 12 years. And then it was sold along with 100 other buildings and 100 other acres in, in private development. Fortunately for us, Bob Graham, our governor, intervened and traded some development rights in exchange for the Little White House, and so we are owned by the governor and cabinet of Florida as a trust property held for the benefit of the people of the world. And our not-for-profit has raised in excess of a million and a half dollars just in the last seven years. Almost all of it, $100 checks, $50 checks from a very grassroots effort to uh, preserve and protect this property. Today, the Harry S. Truman Little White House is refurbished and decorated as it was during Truman's presidency. Our collections are about anywhere from 85 to 95 percent, depending on the room, original. So this is a very, very high uh, percentage of original artifacts. Amongst them, probably the most iconic images 
would be the president's poker table that was made as a gift for him from the Navy cabinet shop and also the president's piano and presidential desk where he ran the country. So those are kind of important things that people seek out when they're, when they're touring the house. From the magazines on coffee tables to the prints on the walls to the glasses behind the bar, walking through the Harry S. Truman Little White House is like stepping back in time to 1949. The biggest artifact is the house itself. The, the house is a rectangular white frame building made of longleaf southern pine. Those of us here in, in the furthest most point of Florida call it Dade County Pine. If you're in Georgia and Carolina, you would probably call it hard pine or heart pine, but it was the native forest of America. So the building is extremely old uh, pine, and it's very, very durable. Uh, it's rectangular, covered in louvers, which were erected to keep the sun, the western sun, from beating in and heating the house up too much. And so it, it has an iconic look all by itself. It's, it's more louver than windows. Uh, Today, these are all glassed in to keep the air conditioning in, and we do have a high-tech air conditioning system to to protect all of the artifacts. But then you get into the house, and it has been faithfully restored to March of 1949. Uh, The president started coming in November of 46, and it was rather deteriorated. It had been used as the Navy commander's house all those years, and no great amount of money had been poured into it. In November, uh, in January of 1949, the Navy hired Haygood Lassiter, the premier interior decorator of Miami Beach in those days, gave him $35,000 to furnish the house suitable for the guests the president would be having. And so while it's not custom-made, it was high-end furniture for the time, almost all of it, uh, Henrodon or Druxtel Heritage and that kind of furniture. Um, for many of our visitors, this is a trip down memory lane, they walk in and they go, my mom had that table, my aunt had that dresser, my you know, grandmother had that break front or something. So they, they can feel very much at home in the house. Um, and while it is 9,000 square feet and the rooms are very spacious, it still has the, the comforts of being a 1950 home. And uh, we have lovingly found and restored the fabrics. The wallpaper after seven years was reprinted and is known now as the Little White House. It's a a, um, New England twall, actually, that the decorator specified, and after seven years of copyright search, it is being reproduced as the Little White House twall. So it is kind of a unique thing to this house. Uh, We did a paint analysis, so every bit of the paint throughout the house is perfectly matched to the the time frame, and even our carpets have all been replaced with 55-ounce wool carpet. So it's a very luxurious home in many ways, and yet it's certainly not overwhelming. Our visitors, especially our international visitors, are always surprised at how homey it is, how, how ordinary, if you like, it is, that it is not palatial, it is not uh, uh, glitzy, it's certainly not Washington, and it's certainly not Versailles or any of the, the palaces that li- the rest of the world looks on their leadership as having. So it is a very comfortable home. Bob Wolves is executive director of the Harry S. Truman Little White House in Key West and co-author with Barbara Hayo of the book Presidents in Paradise, The Legacy of the Harry S. Truman Little White House.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Today, Florida is the third largest sugar producer in the United States, behind only California and Colorado. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society. Ben, you have your papers related to a territorial period sugar plantation in Florida. Yeah, that's right. This dates back to the early territorial days in Florida, about 1820, when the plantation was first established in what is now Flagler County uh, along the banks of the Halifax River. Uh, and the plantation really flourished uh, during this period. They produced, of course, sugar cane, uh, but also indigo, which was a, a primary commodity at that time uh, that was being shipped out of what is now uh, Ponce Inlet. Um, the property was originally ceded to a Spanish citizen in 1812, a gentleman by the name of Russell, uh, in exchange for a schooner. The Spanish government exchanged 4,000 acres uh, for a single schooner in St. Augustine. The land was then sold to a gentleman by the name of Charles Bulow, uh, who came down here in, in 1820, uh, started building the plantation, but died uh, within a few years. And the entire property, all 4,000 plus acres, including the facilities that had uh, uh, the construction had had begun, uh, was given to his uh, to his heir, to his only son, John Bulow. Um, and John is an interesting character. He was educated in Paris, uh, you know, kind of a socialite. Uh, he came to the rural shores of, of East Florida uh, and started to really develop the plantation. Uh, and really, uh, from all accounts, his, his life was, was pretty great. He, he essentially had control over all of this land you know, that he surveyed. Uh, he traveled up and down the Halifax and Indian Rivers uh, until 1835 uh, when the uh, Seminole Wars broke out. And in 1836, uh, the plantation was burned down, right, during the Second Seminole Indian War? Yeah, that's right. Actually, in late 1835, the U.S. government had, of course, begun sending uh, both state militias and, and federal troops into Florida, and they took over his plantation. They had such a large infrastructure that had already uh, been established, the, the government decided to uh, essentially take over his plantation, which was then known as uh, Bulowville. It was so expansive, uh, and they set up camp there. Now, of course, John Bulow was not uh, very amenable to this, and, and when the troops first approached his property, he uh, fired a cannon at him originally. They, they uh, held him in confinement, took over the plantation, um, and as soon as they left for St. Augustine in January of 1836, uh, a band of Seminole Indians uh, completely destroyed the plantation. It was, it was leveled to the ground. Now, the papers you have here at the Library of Florida History mostly deal with Bulow heirs uh, seeking compensation for the loss of property, right? That's right, and, and the, the story really gets even more interesting after, uh, after John Bulow leaves Florida and the Bulow plantation is destroyed. Uh, so after the end of the Second Seminole War in 1842, 
a lot of the residents who lived in East Florida who had incurred some kind of damage could file for compensation uh, as wartime compensation. Uh, and Beulah didn't have any uh, heirs. He never had any children, but his uh, closest uh, living relative was his sister, who at that point had married a gentleman by the name of uh, Buckner uh, up in New York. So that's what we call the collection, the Beulah-Buckner papers. Um, and his sister and her heirs then began filing claims for the U.S. government. And that's actually what we have here. Um, well, first of all, this is the, I had talked about the original uh, title being given by the Spanish government. This is a copy of that abstract. And here it lists in detail the exchange for the schooner. Hmm. Uh, and it talks about the, the Spanish, um, a Spanish ship carpenter uh, going through and, and surveying the schooner, making sure that it's watertight and it's a, it's a good deal. Uh, and then it goes through the, uh, uh, the exchange after that point. Um, but many of the uh, papers that relate to uh, the actual claims go on for decades. Uh, the claims were uh, essentially um, accepted by, by Congress, by both the House and Senate, but during different sessions. Uh, so they were never fully processed, and, and the family kept trying and trying for decades, actually until about 1906. But by that time, uh, because his heirs were claiming that uh, the destruction was caused by the Seminole Indians and not by the U.S. government, uh, they deemed it um, not necessary, so they didn't actually honor the claim. So originally, uh, Bulow had claimed $83,000 worth of damage for, the, for his property, um, but by 1906, the government had essentially dismissed it, and they never, never got a dime for the property. Um, however, you can now visit the ruins of the site that are, that are now a state park, uh, and part of the original sugar mill that was used in the 1820s and 1830s is still intact. Hmm. And there's other uh, sugar mill sites, like the uh, one in New Smyrna was destroyed at the uh, the same time as well. Yeah, that's right. It was a, really a string of these plantations along the uh, eastern uh, coast of Florida, along the St. Johns River, the Halifax, and Indian Rivers. And it was part of, um, th this was really the heyday of, of private plantations uh, producing sugar during the, uh, the early territorial period in Florida. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida is home to some of the most amazing archaeological discoveries in the world, including 101 prehistoric canoes found at Noonan's Lake. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more in this report sponsored by the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. I think there's far more significance to the prehistoric dugout canoe and what that really means to not only transportation but trade travel exchange and the ability for Native Americans to move far more widely, uh, far greater distances. We have evidence of hundreds of canoes now in Florida's prehistoric record and that to me is suggestive that there's far more movement on the landscape, far more use of this as a means of transportation. That was Donna Rule from the Florida Museum of Natural History talking to me about pre-Columbian dugout canoes. It's hard to imagine traveling around Florida on anything other than the many roads or even interstate highway system that line Florida's small towns and large cities. But before European contact, the single most important technology for traveling across the peninsula was the dugout canoe. Donna Rule is the foremost scholar working on canoes in the state, 
She was the lead researcher for the discovery of 101 dugout canoes at Lake Noonan near Gainesville. Because of drought conditions, the bed of the lake was exposed, as were the ancient canoes. Donna Rule and her team quickly preserved as many of them as they could, some dating as far back as 5,000 years ago. Donna Rule here tells me what a canoe excavation site can tell us about the people who used them. We have indirect evidence of canoe by not only the obvious things like paddles and poles, what they were using to manipulate the canoes in and around areas, but we have exotic goods showing up at sites that you wouldn't expect, or non-local goods, if you will. Maybe that's a better term. We're finding chert in areas that chert wouldn't be. We're finding soapstone bowls that they couldn't carry a 40 or 50 or 60 pound material resource that comes from Georgia and find it on an island off the coast of Florida. Um, These are the kinds of things that are very significant in how the canoe was a major part and an integral part of prehistoric life. Having 101 canoes in one location at Lake Noonan was an enormous find for a researcher like Rule. Here she explains what she was able to understand about the design of the canoe over time. Interestingly, for years, people thought that the dugout canoe went through this evolution where you had a more crude form, if you will, or a blunt-ended canoe where both the bow and the stern were similar in shape. Um, But after the result of the 2000 uh, finding of the Noonan's Lake canoes, we had the opportunity to date 53 of the 101 and found that the earliest canoe as well as one of the more recent ones, um, actually shows that that wasn't the case at all. There isn't quite this unilinear evolutionary pattern, and what we're seeing is very similar forms through time, both in how they were crafted, as well as the shapes of these canoes, with similar bows and sterns, as well as how they may have created thwarts inside of them for sitting on or standing, etc. All of these various components to the canoe do not seem to have a drastic change in shape until well into the contact period. So for almost five to 7,000 years, we see a very similar form and a very similar manufacture, whether it's canoes from North Florida or North Central Florida or even South Florida from the few that we have. Change did come to the Indian canoe with European contact. Donna Rule tells me about that impact. I'm not sure that the European influence is what changed the canoe. I think the craftsmanship at some levels with the Seminole canoes coming in, there are similarities in earlier Seminole canoes, the ones that we know that date to the archaeological record, if you will, that's pre-contact as opposed to post-contact. I think it's the artisan and the change in the tools that they're using. Instead of using shell, or lithic or stone resources, basically, depending on where they are in the state, if they're in the areas where we have these kinds of stone tools versus shell along the coast, etc., they're beginning to use metal. And I think the metal tools um, are allowing for a more angular shape. They're allowing for a little bit more of a development of the bow and more pronounced shoulders up towards the prow. And that is something that people have suggested has been something that's a signature of some of these artisan and craftsmen of the Seminole, and possibly because of the fact that they were more in the Everglades, they were moving through grasses, they might have needed a broader-shouldered 
flat front that allowed them to penetrate through those grasses a little bit more easily than what the prehistoric rounded dugout needed to do. I interviewed Donna Rule and others for the podcast series A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Donna Rule, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, where you can get our daily post today in Florida history and much more. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to read our weekly blog version of Florida Frontiers. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.